you have your Bibles, open them to Psalm 48, where we will continue our study through the Psalms. As I prayed and labored over what to do on Thanksgiving Eve, on the night before we give thanks to God, and had some thoughts, all of them toward God, and I thought, what better place to be than in the Word of God, studying about God that we're giving thanks to. And just so happens the subject that we'll be discussing is the love of God. And what more to be thankful for than the love of God. Amen. So we begin reading tonight, Psalm 48. It's a psalm, or a song, and a psalm for the sons of Korah, it says. That's actually in the original text. Then we begin reading in verse 1 of Psalm 48. It says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountains of his holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. For lo, the kings were assembled, and they passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled and hasted away. Fear took hold upon them, and the Pain uh, as of a woman in travail. Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. And as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. Selah. Verse 9 really picks up our text of where we'll be tonight. The beginning it says, We have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. According to thy name, O God, is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Walk about Zion and go round about her. Tell the towers thereof. Mark you all the, her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. For this God is our God forever. And ever, he will be our God, even unto death. And as we study this great psalm, this next section, if you would join me in prayer as we commit our hearts to God. Father God, we praise you tonight for this psalm. We exalt your name and we praise you as my brother prayed that we have a country where we have the freedom to, to speak and to preach and to study your word openly in public and to be together in fellowship, and we praise you for that tonight. And Lord, we gather together tonight, Lord, with thankful hearts in lieu of the Thanksgiving season when so many will be gathering no thoughts toward you. Lord, we turn our hearts toward you with all thanks. Thank you for our lives, and thank you for your work in them. Thank you for bringing us here tonight that we might hear your word, that we might grow closer to you because of our knowledge of you. And may you be exalted in all things. This we pray with thankful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. The first study of this great psalm, we were drawn to a picture of God and a picture to Zion, the great city of God. It was a picture of the city with God in the palaces. 
of the great city, a picture of God as the refuge of this great city of Zion, the city of God. We discussed both the picture of Jerusalem at the time of this psalm, and we discussed the picture that it portrays of the new Jerusalem to come. We went to Revelation, and we discussed a little bit about the new Jerusalem and the new earth as this one passes away. We said that the city was great and amazing for no other reason than that was where God was. And we said that the only reason that any city or anything would be worthy of any kind of praise is because of the presence of God. And before we move on, we need to make a note. One that the world knew that this place, this city, where God dwelt in the palaces and where God was the refuge, the world, including the kings, they saw this great city and they knew that that's where God dwelt. And in verse 5 says they saw it and they marveled and they were troubled and they ran away, hasted away. It was so great when they saw God there that the fear took hold upon them and they were in pain. And we talked about that, almost birth pains, extreme pain. And it wasn't because of the city was great. It was because of the God that was great who dwelled in the city. And as we move forward in this study, we need to understand that the dwelling place of God today is the church. And I'm not talking about the building, but I'm talking about all the born-again believers who make up the true church. Some call it the hidden church. We read in 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know you're the temple of God? We are the dwelling place of God. And the world today looks at the dwelling place of God that is the church. And there is no marveling. There's no fear. And no one today is troubled by the church at all. And the reason, I'm afraid, is that when the world looks at what is called the church in this postmortem world we live in, they do not see the God of the Bible. And therefore they do not fear or marvel. It is a shame that when looking at the church and looking at the people of the church that the world doesn't see the glory of God dwelling there. What they do see is the glory of man when they look at most churches today. Because the picture most often presented by the church today is a picture of man saving himself and doing everything he can to hold on to that salvation that he doesn't lose it. It's an improper view of salvation and an improper view of God, but it's predominant. And they call that the church in our postmodern world. As preachers, we're called to preach. When you read the instructions from the Word of God, it says preach the Word. The meaning of that is that we preach the truth about God so that the people, all people, have a proper view of who God is. And it is a true picture of God when presented will cause even kings to marvel and fear when they see this great God of Scripture. And as we continue our study of our our psalm, we see this proper picture of God as the Word of God presents it to us. That after this great call to worship, God is great and greatly to be praised. Right after that, we read verse 9. It says... We have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of the temple. If you notice, something that jumps out is that right after verse 8 of our psalm, we see 
what we call a salah, a divine selah, a divine pause, if you would, to stop and think about what you've just heard about God and deal with that. Immediately after this divine pause that we have of considering the greatness of God, look at what it does. The, next, the very next thought is the thought of the love of God. We have thought of thy loving kindness. The reason this is, is that as true believers, we understand that we do not deserve God's love from this great God that we worship. We, do, we deserve nothing, and we can do nothing to make him or cause him to love us. He loves us because that's who he is, not because of us. And in a time when the world has messed up the world, word love so much, and it's misused for so many things. Even when speaking about God's love, they misuse this idea of the love of God. So it would be good for us to consider a proper biblical view of God's love. It's not a coincidence, I believe, that our men's Bible study on Saturday mornings, that's where we are. We're in the middle of the study of God's love. And if some of you want to take notes, you can use some of this for our homework that we were assigned this past week to come back and discuss how God loves Many of people today, or many theologians today even, would have us to think that God is love and that's it. They want to view God today with only one of his attributes, one of his perfections, if you would, and that is the view of God's love. And that's really due to the human inability to understand that all of God's attributes, all of his perfections, all of them come together. He never stops being one to be another. He doesn't stop being love to judge someone he doesn't stop being love or stop being judgmental to love he doesn't lay anything down he is completely all of who he is at every moment in time we have a hard time getting our hands around that and we have a hard time understanding God because that doesn't fit into who we think God ought to be because it's not who we are we feel like we have to stop loving to dislike something. If God says he hates something, then he's had to put his love somewhere over here in a box that he'll come back and get it later. That's not the way that it works. It may be the way it works for you. It may be the way it works for me, but that's not the type of love that God has. God does not change, and God does not stop loving just to make his judgment perfect as well. And you may be asking yourself, why do I need to know all this? All I need to know is the gospel. All I need to know is I need to be saved. But the truth is that this is our spiritual food. We who were once dead and now are alive in Christ have now been given a desire from God for the things of God and even have a great need for this spiritual food that we get from the word of God. That gives us the knowledge of God. This desire from salvation, from this change, is so great that we feel as though we can't live without it. That's what we were talking about. God is precious to us. His word, therefore, is precious to us. We want to know him more. As true believers, as you were praying to examine yourself, this is one of the signs of a true believer. You now have a desire for the things of God. It's even what Paul prayed for in Ephesians 3. He prayed for the church. Look what he prayed for in Ephesians 3 verse 14. He said, 
for this cause. He's telling us why. I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why I'm praying of the whole, whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with the might of his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with the fullness of God. Paul prayed for the church to know and understand the truth of Christ's love. And he did it so that the church might be filled, the people of the church might be filled with the fullness of God and therefore glorify God. As a church, we are called to glorify God. Knowing the gospel is only a a part of that. We must know this God. And when we address this topic of the love of God, we must use the word of God as all authority. Therefore, the word of God must have the final word and final say-so in what we think about God, especially his love or any other subject for that matter. But our problem, especially for those of us who have been in church most of our lives, is that we have preconceived notions, presumptions. We come to the word of God always with what we've been taught, what we think we know. And it's very hard for us sometimes when we know something in our minds so great, but it's wrong and it's not what the Bible says. And so often, error will drag us off into the weeds. And this is one of the areas I believe that we get drug off in the weeds. I've been there in the weeds with this topic of the love of God. And this should be a five, six week series that we're going to do like a cliff note type study tonight. A very high view of looking at this. And a subject then, a jumping off point for us all to jump into this on our own in our personal time and grow in our knowledge of the love of God that we might feel the fullness of God as Paul prayed. First John 4, 8 is a verse that gets used a lot and we found it in our men's Bible study to be listed in, as, from the author of our study as a topic or a jumping off point that people use often. It says that he that knoweth not God, but the last part is what we know, for God is love. And the world, world takes this verse and many of us do as well. And it's used in a series of verses to gear our minds toward thinking that God loves everyone, every person, exactly the same way. Absolutely. Believing that everyone is loved by God to the same degree, and the same level, in the same way. And some of you are going to get upset, but that's not what Scripture teaches. And before you get up and leave, let's look at this this whole subject, and let's consider this with the Bible as all authority. God is love. We read in 1 John 4, 8, that is true. He is. But to overemphasize this one attribute of God and disregard everything else about God is to err greatly and even to create an idol in our own minds because it's not a true picture of God. While God is love, we read in John 4, 24, God is spirit. Also in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, we read, God is light. The author of our men's Bible study brought this out as well. 
We never seem to get those other two statements mixed up or disregard them to consider them alone with all the other attributes gone. It's just the one that is convenient for us to justify ourselves to continue in whatever sin we want to continue in. We pull out God is love, therefore he loves me even though I'm a sinner and that's, we're going to hide behind that. So let's look at this biblically for a few moments. And the first thing we look at is that God so loved the world, which means God loves his creation. We call this a common love and a, or a common grace, as some would call it, that's extended really unconditionally to all creation. We read about it in John 3.16. We all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is God's love for the whole world that he created, a common love, we call it. It's what Titus 3 calls God's love, general love for mankind. It's also what is expressed in Matthew 5, verse 45, when it says that he makes the sun to rise on evil and on good and sends rain to the just and unjust. He blesses and loves all people and provides for all people with this common general love that he has for all the world. So that all the world, whether it's good or evil, whether they're just or unjust, all of creation experiences some level of God's love. We call that common grace. It shows up in the fact that God provides for the unjust and the just in this world. He allows both to breathe, both to have life. You have to first think, God could condemn and judge all of the unjust immediately if he wanted to, but he doesn't. And that is his general love that stops him from doing that. That common grace that he gives to all mankind, to all lost people even, that they are not judged immediately for their rebellion. But God who is rich in mercy has chosen to give his common grace to all. We see it expressed very clearly. It's what he means in Second Peter ver- Uh, chapter 3 in verse 9 it says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness but is long suffering toward us not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance this is an expression of his general love that he allows people the time to look at creation for example for he reveals himself in creation it says so that people are, are without excuse for rebellion and denial of the existence of God He reveals himself so greatly. That is the love of God revealing himself. That's showing love. And to many he shows even more compassion. He allows them to actually hear the gospel. That's what this country is so blessed about. This country gives more people than any other country the ability to hear the gospel. And now with the internet and with all the apps and stuff you get, you can can hear the gospel anywhere at any time. But that's God's love. He allows him. He doesn't have to do that. That is an expression of his common love for his creation. By allowing everyone that gets to hear the gospel to hear the gospel. Not everyone has heard it, but everyone has seen creation. The word of God even goes so far as to say that he has compassion for the lost people. And even for those who will end up in eternal punishment for God so loved the world this way that is his love for the whole world. And he does love the world. But there's a different love. There's a a different love that God has 
and that is for the believers, for his children. I heard someone describe it this way, maybe in our men's study. It's like, I love children. I love all the, the children that we have in our church. But there's a special love for my children. I love them differently because they're mine. And see, that's what we see with God. There is a different love. While believers have the common love as well, there is a different love, a different degree of love, if you would. A special love. We call it a distinguishing love or distinguishing grace, some would call it, that God reserves only for his church. We were in Ephesians a minute ago. We see this in Ephesians described in Ephesians 5. He's actually talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife. Well, actually, the whole section deals on all relationships. But in Ephesians 5.25, we see this special love really revealed in, in technicolor. It jumps off the page at us. It says, husbands, in verse 25 of Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. There he is. He loved the church. But he goes on to say, and gave his life for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with a washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Scripture says, who is it that he says he loved? He loved the church, right? It's a different love we're talking about here. He loved the church, and this love is so different that he gave his life for the church. Christ took the punishment for all the church. We call it propitiation, right? Big long word. All sin will be punished. For those who are in Christ, those who are the elect, those who are born again believers, those who place their trust, all the things we say about what a true Christian, those are the true church that he died for. He took the punishment for them. That's how he loved them. For those who reject Christ, on the other hand, those who are in rebellion and reject him will stand before God and be sent to hell and punished for eternity for their sins. Because Christ did not take that punishment. He, there was no reason to. They're not saved. If he would have taken all the punishment for all the people, everybody got to go to heaven because he paid the price for everybody. He is our Savior, and he's our Savior because he paid the penalty for our sins and saved us from that eternal punishment. And we know that everybody's getting in. God's love is a very distinguishing love. He even distinguishes even more as a, as a perfect and complete love. In John 13, Jesus talking about his love. We see this picture. It was just before the Passover. And he's sitting with, the, with his disciples. And he says, he said, right now I'll read from verse 1 from John 13. He says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world, he's about to go to the cross, unto the Father. And it says, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. In the King James. He loved his own. These are the ones that God had given him from John 17. You read about that. If you can go read that and study that, it covers not only the people in the room, but these are, he's talking about loved his own. That's his own children. These are his. 
and he loved them unto the end. The meaning here is a, a complete and perfect and a full type of love. We have one word for love in the English language, and it, all these words get translated into that word. We, we, I made a comment. We love pizza. We love our dog. As men, we love our wives. Not the same way. Not the same love. Hopefully, it's not the same love. We go back, and, go back to the Ephesians part about loving our wives, if that's not true. But there are different loves, and this is one of those. Jesus loved them completely and perfectly. It actually means a maximum capacity of love. In other words, he, he, loves, he loves his own so completely that he can't love them anymore. He loves them to the fullness of God. Many believers don't understand that concept that you can't do anything to make God love you more and you can't do anything to make him love you less if you are a true believer. So many people with this wrong theology live these lives after becoming saved, not understanding this, a life of strife and struggle, even discouragement and depression because they're always trying to make God love them more doing what they can to say, make God love them, period, because they feel like he loves me less because I messed up. Nowhere in Scripture do you see that theology, that we do things to make God love us. As a matter of fact, it says we can't do anything to make him love us. He loves us because he chose to love us. And people are working themselves into depression and despair, trying to make up for things they did wrong. That's what we have confession for. He forgives us if we confess our sins. That's what we do. We don't go out and make penance. That's Catholic. We don't go out and, and do good deeds to override the bad deeds. We truly repent and he forgives. And as a believer, the scriptures tell us that he loves us to the end. To the uttermost. That is the complete fullness of God's love that he loves us as true believers as his children if you're born again you're loved by God to the fullness of God's love and it will never diminish and you can never lose that love Matthew eleven twenty nine, actually 28 and 29 Jesus said this come to me all ye that labor and heavy laden I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart you shall find rest in your souls. Verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do he's speaking to here? He's speaking to the people who were in that pharisaical system trying to earn the love of God and trying to work to keep the love of God doing stuff. And he's telling them, you've got this yoke of legalism, this yoke of trying to work to earn the favor of God. Don't take that. Take the yoke that he gives, the forgiveness of sin, the eternal life, and find rest in knowing that God loves you. That's why when we asked the question before, why do I need to know this? You need to know this so you can live a life that's full and not full of despair. For his yoke is easy. So but those people that are laboring or heavy laden are the people that are thinking they're needing to work to get God to love them. To get God to love them more. If you're a true believer, he loves you. This kind of love. If 
you wind it all up and you, you put it together, it's basically saying understanding the love of God for believers is where we find our rest and our peace. God's love comes from God freely and not because of anything we can do to earn it. Romans 5.8 reminds us when it says that God commanded his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us not because we did something good to deserve it, not because we turned to start doing something, not that we cleaned ourselves up and became presentable to him. It says, no, you were still in the middle of your mess and God loved you. While we were still rejecting him, while we were still sinners, he chose to love us. That's the choosing of God that's based not on works, but solely upon the grace of God. That's what we mean with the sovereign grace of God, is that God loved us. We were unlovable. And he loved us with a complete and perfect love. Also, that, that love is eternal. God set his love on all who would believe, all those who he chose before the foundations of the world. In Ephesians, again, I didn't mean for this whole thing to go in Ephesians, but that just seems to be a good place to be. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are in Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According to that he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Ephesians 1 says that God chose all believers in love when? Before the foundations of the world. Before anything was created, God loved his elect. For all of us, how many, of, how many people in here are saved? Everybody? Let's see. Let's see if I, okay. For all of us that are saved, that means before he created anything, he loved you. That's what that scripture says. And it also means that all through history, to this very moment in time, God loved you the same way. Perfect and complete. And for believers, Ephesians 2, one chapter over, shows us that this love will continue through all the ages, through all eternity. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of this air, of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we also had our conversations in times past in the lust of our flesh, Fulfilling, we were fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind, and were by the nature of children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, there it is, even while we were dead in sins, hath made us alive, or quickened us together in Christ. By grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 7. This is eternal. That is that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Our salvation 
will glorify God, showing the exceeding riches of God's love and his great kindness through Jesus Christ for all eternity future, for all ages. Amen. Amen. My mama called that once saved, always saved. That horse will still ride today. That dog will still hunt, they say. God loves people differently. And it's hard for us to reconcile that. Romans 8 tells us that not only is it eternal, it's permanent. I know you know where I'm going. Every one of you know it. Romans 8, 38, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature or any shall be able to separate us from the love of God. It pretty much covers everything. Shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You roll that up in a package that says, if you're a true believer, there's nothing that can separate you from that love. Your failures can't separate you from the love of God. Your family's failures can't separate you from the love of God. And even the devil can't separate you from the love of God. And some of you probably still hung up on the fact and want to try to find some scripture where you can't understand how God can love people differently because we can't. But we do. We Husbands love their wives, and we're supposed to like Christ of the church. We're supposed to love no other woman that way. So we do love differently. We love our children better than we do other people's children. That's only a small idea of this great love of God, but it is the same concept that God loves his own differently because they are his own. And it's hard for us to reconcile when we read back in Earlier in the Psalms, in Psalm 5, when it said that he hated all workers of iniquity. And how can God hate and love at the same time? That's why he's God and we're not. Because he can do that. Because, remember, we started, all of his attributes come at the same time. His perfections, if you would, are there at the same moment. We went on, we read it in, in Psalm eleven five: The Lord tries the righteous, but the wicked, and him that loves violence... He hates his soul, he says. We read in Romans 9 that he hated Esau. And people cringed and thought, God hates? Yes, God hates. God loves? Yes, God loves. He's God. And he is a great God and greatly to be praised. And we have to submit ourselves to the word of God that says says that about him. Not only do we just say he's great, Because he's like us. No, he's great because he's nothing like us. He's great because he is who he says he is in the scripture. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you tonight. That you are who you are. That you loved us even while we were rebelling and doing everything we could to run away from you, reject you. Thank you for salvation. Lord, I pray for everyone here tonight that they know for certain that they have this eternal life we've spoken of, this special distinguishing love. And Lord, that you might be working in the hearts of some here tonight, gripping them with conviction and drawing them to you. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that they would submit themselves to you and cry out for mercy, undeserved love from a God who loves them who has opened their eyes to their sinful, lost condition, their eternal destination of a devil's hell, and Lord, drawing them away from that into eternity in heaven.
pray for, for us as we, as we leave here tonight that this concept of love would reign in our hearts and our minds, that we would live in a confidence and in a boldness. No longer struggling to earn your love, knowing that no matter what we do, we can do nothing to earn it. Our righteousness, our best, is filthy rags to you. You love us because of who you are, and we praise you tonight for that, because we are so unlovable. And I pray for those that might be here that are trying so hard to earn your love and battling discouragement and despair. Lord, I pray for the world around us. Lord, that they might see the glory of God in us, not the glory of man, but the glory of God in this church and in each person in this church. And that like the kings that were mentioned in the first section of our psalm, they would tremble in fear because they see God. That they might be drawn to you. That they might be drawn to repentance because of this great God that they see and the work that he's done in his church and in his people in his church. Lord, we, we praise you for this time of Thanksgiving, this time of year when we come into this time of Thanksgiving. And then the time of Christmas, Lord, when, when the rest of the world Hearts somewhat will turn toward you. May we be a light in this great darkness we find ourselves living in. And may that light not be our own, but be the light of Christ truly reigning in the hearts of his people. That you might receive all glory and all honor and all worship. For you alone are worthy of it all.